You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Special edition, first one of the year. Post-game podcast edition here. Uh, also on YouTube, so post-game YouTube as well. Uh, make sure to subscribe to both of those. Uh, guys, we are breaking down Oregon's 31-24 come-from-behind victory week one of the 2021 football season at home against Fresno State. Ducks improved to 1-0, and it was a game that was a lot tighter than I think anyone on this show and any probably Duck fan for the most part was probably expecting. I know Jared was the only one to correctly guess that it would go under the 20 and a half point spread in favor of Oregon. But I don't even know if Jared was thinking it would be a one score game uh, and Oregon having to come from behind, which the the fourth quarter was interesting. Uh, Fourth quarter starts off with Anthony Brown fumbling the football, setting up a field goal attempt, which was good by uh, Fresno state to take a 24 21 lead. The ducks then, uh, get the ball back a couple of possessions later, make a field goal to tie it. And then Justin Flo with a tackle on Jacob, uh, Jake Hayner, Fresno State's quarterback, which resulted in a fumble. Oregon recovers at Fresno State's, I think, 35. And a couple of plays later, Anthony Brown up the middle, 30 yards for a touchdown on fourth and two, nonetheless, for the game winning score, which gives us 24 30, excuse me, 31 24 Oregon. Um, we've got comments from you, the fan that we're going to run through and give our take on. We've been, we've got some assessments to give some analysis. We've spoken with coaches, we've spoken with players, uh, but first quick thoughts, uh, on this football game for one, uh, I'll go first. This was a very underperforming performance by the offense, uh, uh, by Oregon. And I think it overshadows a performance by Oregon's defense that was pretty darn good uh, outside of some lake leaky holes in the, in, in the passing game in the second quarter. Yeah. The defense was great for three out of four quarters. I would say um, maybe, I mean, actually there were some moments in the third quarter that weren't fantastic either. Um, Fresno state, the way this game started, I re- it really felt like it could be an ugly game. I mean, Oregon gets ahead 14, nothing after two, forced turnovers you see some of the athleticism and some of the physicality that we've been so excited about off the edge came on Thibodeau with honestly like one of the most impressive sack force fumbles you're going to see in, in a while on Hayner who honestly probably had two to three seconds from receiving the ball from the center and the shotgun snap to then being blasted by Thibodeau didn't have a chance to really prepare for it ball comes flying out sets Oregon up for the early score um but then the offense was just stagnant. And actually, you just kind of look throughout the whole game here, and I don't want to run through everything because we're going to do a lot on this podcast. But the, the longest drive of the game was a 74-yarder. That was the only sustained drive that ends in points um, in the first half. And that was a pass to Johnny Johnson. Second half, one more sustained scoring drive for a touchdown. That's the one 63-yard drive that results in the Anthony Brown touchdown. Um, again, Oregon defense setting that up with the forced punt right before that. But, you know, it's just a game where I think you come away thinking, boy, that there's a lot to work on on both sides of the football. You know, I think the offense clearly has more things to work on, but the defense had some poor stretches too. Um, I think once Kayvon Thibodeau came out of the game, we can talk about that later, suffered an ankle injury. That was a pretty big, I think, changing of kind of the momentum in that game. You know, Oregon had really gotten after Hainer, forced a lot of sacks, forced throws, turnovers. Um, but once Thibodeau was out of the game, it seemed like he got into a rhythm. They kind of went on a little bit of a run to end the half, made it 21-13. Um, Thibodeau did not play the second half. And, and really the, the pass rush didn't pop up and really show up much until um, a Brandon Dorless sack um, late in the game to kind of help seal it. So I think a lot of things you can be really excited about defensively. And I think some things offensively you can be excited about, like, hey, at least Anthony Brown, he can run the ball. He can do some things with his legs. There's a lot of things I think offensively that you probably don't feel very good about. And we'll get to a lot of that throughout the show. Yeah, I don't think we're going to differ too much on opinions here on what we saw on the field. I was excited to see the defense. I thought they played well. Fresno State's a solid offensive team. 
Uh, and they really killed Oregon like in the second quarter with basically playing like an air raid type of offense, just hitting like short five yard flat routes or out routes to the sideline and just, you know, hitting Oregon in, the, in their zone coverage. Um, that was, but I, I thought other than that, that they played well, but yeah, the offense was just lacking. There's, there's no other way to describe it. Uh, they, the play call was very vanilla. I'm not sure what it is. If either the coaching staff isn't confident in Anthony Brown or maybe Anthony Brown hasn't shown it or they don't want to open it up too much before they play Ohio State and show them what they're doing, which I don't really I don't really buy. But it was just a lackluster offensive performance when I think a lot of people had gone into that game, including us, thinking that we would see something special. We had talked about how it's a full off season under Moorhead's new playbook. <clears throat> and we have you know, Anthony Brown's coming back his second year with the program. Uh, yeah, it was just a, maybe a, for some people might've been a disappointing first game. It was one in which I think there were a ton of comments from the fan base. I mean, the duck territory message board was absolutely on fire leading up to the game. And then it was just, full bond ablaze during and now after um, plenty of thoughts from this one, Eric, you went on and uh, after the game was over and asked for some feedback on this game and, and just let's get a pulse of the fan base right now um, after a, a 31 24 victory for Oregon. Yeah, we got a lot of responses. I won't read all of them. I won't even read half of them probably, but I want to run through, you know, about half a dozen, I think are, things we can talk about afterwards and, and reflect on uh, the first one from at underscore D weather five pass blocking, sorry, pass blocking is suspect. If Anthony Brown hits you with the ball, please catch it. I believe we should consider playing more man defense for Dell needs to start. Wide receivers need to create more separation or Joe Moorhead needs to scheme them more open from at road. Bob seems like the QB is only three to five steps behind line of scrimmage and pass plays pocket collapses in less than two seconds. And Brown is off running for his life. He needs more space to set up and throw seven step drops, please. From at Timothy Thiki, the defense took a big step back without Thibodeau. The coverage was too soft. Ducks clearly needed Hill and James out there and they'd play. Sorry. And the play calling was too vanilla until the fourth quarter. AB needs more, some more time to get, the offense humming, and where was Red? That would be talking about Jalen Red, who, by the way, did play in this game uh, and one catch for seven yards, so not exactly a, a huge uh, game from Jalen. Another one from at Duck or Go Ducks or, sorry. The extra year of eligibility across the board is detrimental directly and indirectly for Oregon this season and moving forward. I think it's kind of an interesting one to think about. We'd like to, I'd like to recircle on that one at some point later, maybe not in this show, but definitely down the line. Um, at Take It Cheesy, I don't know if it's the O-line or quarterback, but we have playmakers all over the field and we can't get them the ball. The offense needs some more spark because the defense was gassed at the end and finished strong. Oregon can't play like that next week. And then the last two here from at two to shoots. If Ohio State, if Ohio State doesn't go as we hope, sorry, I misread that one. If Ohio State doesn't go as we hope, Thompson or Butterfield should get the reins. AB just can't throw it. The O-line seems quite impress unimpressive as well. Or maybe Fresno State is good. And then just the last comment here was uh, Troy Franklin. What happened to him from at JJ Edwards 71. So um, a lot going on there. I think the thing that stood out to me actually the most was that it seemed like the fans were kind of giving Anthony Brown, not a pass. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying the fans were like, Hey, Anthony was great in this game, but it did seem like there was a quite a bit of understanding that, that it wasn't just his fault that the passing offense and the offense in general didn't work, that the offensive line probably didn't play very well. Some players pointing or some posters pointing out the uh, lack of separation from receivers, which I think is definitely notable. Definitely surprised with, uh, I guess, just the inability to get guys open. I don't know, again, if that was scheme or if that's personnel. Um, but I don't know. Like, we can talk about this now. Like, how much of the offense's shortcomings fall on Anthony Brown's shoulders and how much fall on everyone else? Because I, I do think he's obviously the quarterback. He's the one who touched the ball. Every I mean, he's the one who determines a lot of things. And obviously, I don't think his play was up to par. But do we think that was like, how much is that on his shoulders and how much of that is, is just supporting cast? Well, I don't want to answer your question with another question. Um, but I think to get to the bottom of that answer, we have to first decide amongst the three of us if we thought Oregon was being vanilla on offense on purpose 
And if, mm. or if they weren't, because if they were being super vanilla, they weren't showing everything in the playbook um, and they didn't open everything up, that limits what your offense is going to be able to do, which makes it harder to execute, especially when Fresno State was daring them to throw the football. So um, to me, I do think they were running some of the stuff. They, they were running some basic stuff. They weren't showing everything. Um, I also think ultimately that ended up being a bad decision um, because it kept the game so close. And at the same time, I don't think there were, there were plays that did not help Anthony Brown. I, I, I felt like the offensive line, they didn't play an A-level game. They, and you do the grades here, Eric. But yep. my, uh, first, my first reaction to that is I would probably give the offensive line like a B minus. Like you walk away feeling, hey, they did pretty good, but there is a ton of room to, to improve. And you're just a, a hair ahead of being that average performance. I also don't think the receivers did a very good job. Uh, you know, Micah Pittman dropped a couple passes, one of which was a touchdown. Now you could argue it should have been a better throw by Anthony Brown, but it had the opportunity to be caught. It hit him in the hands and he didn't catch it. Um, I think that's something to look at, but ultimately fair or not, he is the quarterback and that's the position that when things are going great, you are amazing. And when things are not going good, you are going to get the blunt of the criticism and he's going to hear quite a bit of it. He probably won't read it. He probably won't pay attention to it from the fan base, but a lot of the fans are going to instantly blame him for the, the offensive insufficiencies uh, against Fresno state fair or not. And I don't think it's all on him, but he played a factor as well. Definitely not all on him. I think the vanilla offense thing is something that's kind of hard to totally know because we don't know what the offense really looks like. And, and frankly, we're watching the game at real time and I haven't had a chance to go rewatch it to see everything, but I will say it did feel like from a creativity of a play calling perspective, we saw a lot of interior run plays in spots where I would like to see them do something different. Um, and that's been a trend with Mario Cristobal. And, and again, maybe I'm just someone who plays a lot of Madden and watches a lot of like Pat Mahomes, you know, <laughs> playing for Kansas city and some of these offenses around the country where, where they are a lot more, I guess, aggressive in certain circumstances, but this is not a very aggressive offense period. And, and in terms of when you, you get in a circumstance that's short, you know, short yardage running plays. I, I don't know how much of that is the offensive lines in ability to have success. How much of that is Fresno state's stoutness up front. We talked about that all week as a strength from them. They were one of the best teams in the country at limiting the run last year and in causing sacks. So they deserve some credit too. But, you know, part of me just thinks like, I, I don't know. I think, I think, there was a lot left to be desired offensively in terms of what they did in certain circumstances. And I'd like to see them open that up going forward. It would be my hope they would do that in terms of what the scheme can be. If there's more to it, I'm guessing there's a lot more to it. Um, I would hope there's more to it. If there's not like be concerned right now, like be very concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's they not, threw for, they threw for one first down in the entire game. That's on, third down. On, on third down. Yeah. On that's third a, down. On, like that to me, that's a big concern. And that's on him. Well, I'd love to. I, I mean, I, I mean, we'll have to go back and rewatch this, and I'll do a bunch of analysis. But I mean, the, the, the third down situations, it just seemed like it was a lot of you were either in third and long in a pass situation that wasn't optimal, or it was third and short, and it was very predictable what you did, and that resulted on trying to go for it on fourth, I think, three times, a couple times successfully, a couple times unsuccessfully. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's there's a lot left to unpack. I think I want to rewatch it before I draw too many conclusions. But like, my, my big thing would be just like. I don't think we saw all of Oregon's offense, but what we did see just wasn't very impressive, period. I mean, I don't want to put all the blame on one person. Sure. But, you know, A.B. Is, is the quarterback. He's the guy who makes the plays. He's the guy who gives the confidence to the coaching staff to open up the playbook. And, again, maybe there's the theory that Oregon wasn't trying to open up their playbook because they don't want Ohio State knowing everything. But that almost cost them a game week one against Fresno State where that game against Ohio State, if they lose, doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So I truly, I do question the fact that if it's this far into camp, we have, or sorry, this far into the season, where I know we're just at week one, but we've had Anthony Brown be basically QB1 all fall camp, all spring, and at some points during last year, he was QB1. And this offense 
has had a full season to develop and all of it. And it's still, there's, there's no pizzazz. There's no anything. I think we went over this in the press box where it's like, okay, what was the coolest play? Not the coolest, but what was the most interesting play of that, of, of, of some of these drives. And it's like, uh, there was an option pitch. There was a long pass down the sideline to Johnny Johnson. What else was there? You know, like, uh, so that's, that's what I'm kind of struggling with is that Eric, like you said, where it's like, there's a third down and long it's, they didn't have the confidence in Anthony Brown's or have a passing play. It's usually was a run up the middle for CJ Verdell or Travis die, which would get them six yards, but then there's fourth and three, and then they might go for it again, but then they're just going to run. So there was no, it was very consistently bland. Every play was basically like, okay, we're going to just try to get four yards here. Well, and just okay, one more thought before we go back to Matt um, on, on this is just like you, you, I think, I mean, you made a great point at the top there of like, you don't, sacrifice a bunch of offensive, you know, creativity and skill plays, and then potentially that also sacrifices a game. You know what I mean? That doesn't make sense. And I'd also say like, you know, and I'm not a coach. I've never been a head coach. Again, I, my, my X's and no knowledge only comes from playing Madden probably more than I should. Um, but like, wouldn't you rather be preparing all of this fun stuff and practicing it against Fresno State right. first game rather than debuting everything against Ohio State? So, like, the argue, I, I almost think it's a little hollow to suggest that there's a huge component we haven't seen yet. I'm not saying that there can't be certain, you know, formations or certain, uh, you know, route trees we haven't totally seen yet. But I don't think you're going to, like, this isn't, like, 5% of the offense. This has to be right. at least the majority of what they're going to do. And that concerns me. It's not like the entire playbook against Ohio State is going to look drastically different than it did today or yesterday whenever you listen to the show. Um, against Fresno State and Ohio State has no problems showing everything in their playbook or they probably kept some good stuff from Minnesota so that Oregon doesn't see it on film but they called an aggressive game plan and I think there were a couple times and, and we also don't know here like did Anthony Brown have some deep shots called and he just didn't pull the trigger or he couldn't pull the trigger on the throw because an offensive lineman got beat on his block and he had to shuffle his feet to the right and get himself away from pressure, which then took him away from making a safe throw within that play design. We don't know all of that stuff. I imagine some of that happened. I imagine he also just got gun shy and, and didn't pull the trigger and throw the football on a couple of, of those throws that they potentially had. But I am with you guys that there wasn't a lot of creativity and getting guys out into open space um, with this offense. And to me, if they come out next week and they show a bunch of stuff and it works and it looks good, my, my question is why wouldn't you want to have that on film Again, you know, and do that against Fresno State to get yourself in a better sense of state of mind where you are offensively, even though Ohio State would see it. Because now, look, Anthony Brown himself said it was obvious the offense was not good enough today. And the team was coming off the field feeling like, hey, we won. And, and that matters. That is the most important thing. Oregon won. They're 1-0. Right. They will still be probably in the, they'll be in the top 10 probably on Tuesday when the rankings come out. And that ultimately is what matters the most. But there's going to be that sense now where when they come off the football field, they didn't play well. And they, they, they know that they're going into now the biggest game of the year, knowing we didn't play very well the last time we were out here. We need to show that we're better. And I would much rather give some stuff away and have that confidence going mm-hmm. in saying, we did it last week. We're going to do it again this week. That's a really good point. And it's a, let me make a weird analogy that I think works, but it reminds me of like, player development in the NBA when you're tanking, when it's like outwardly not, and this is, I'm not saying Oregon's tanking. I'm not saying Oregon's not trying to win, but if you are, are you, if you're holding yourself back a little bit for any competitive advantage or perceived competitive advantage and not giving it 100%, I don't think that's fair. I think that's counterproductive. And I think you made a good Mm -hmm. point psychologically, Matt, of like the players clearly come off the field and we talked to them, you know, three offensive players, Forsyth, Anthony Brown, and Johnny Johnson III, none of them were smiling and feeling great about things. I'm not saying that they were, you know, doom and gloom and, and really sad about how it played out either, but there was not a lot of, like, 
rah-rah enthusiasm afterwards. I think that's because I knew they didn't play very well. And yeah. so, again, if there's a component of this is uh, that is actually, hey, we have this whole thing in the playbook we're not showing, um, I think that's by mistake. And I might be totally wrong, and I'd be singing a different tune. I'll be apologizing a week from now if, if there's suddenly – a whole bunch of new components that we've never seen before that we didn't see against Fresno state that are very, very successful against Ohio state. And that, that makes that game competitive or even a victory. I'll have to have a very different answer, but I'm with you, Matt. I think you brought up a good point of like, I think psychologically no one's feeling great off of this and you'd like to be coming into this game with Ohio state feeling yourself a little bit. And instead there's mm-hmm. really no momentum to build off of. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I agree with both of you guys where, they they clearly just didn't play that well and they all admitted it. And it was, I mean, it would have been very strange if they hadn't admitted it, if they were just like, Oh yeah, I think we played great today. Like, Oh yeah, I don't know. Well, just going by the numbers and the fact that you guys only won by one score, Fresno state isn't a great look, but yeah, I, the whole idea that there's more in the tank with the playbook and the play calling and things like that is becoming to be this far fetched idea because obviously they didn't see it last year. And we always pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, it was the COVID season and no off season. You couldn't really install playbooks. Now with all of this ahead, it's still kind of meat and potatoes. And I also kind of wonder if Joe Moorhead has full control of the offense. Hmm. So I, I, and I don't know anything obviously, but I just kind of like this, the offense has, hasn't changed dramatically from and excuse me from uh, Marcus Arroyo to Joe Moorhead and I wonder if there's a reason behind that if the the pistol offense and the runs up the middle and the hard the big boy football that has been implemented has kind of taken over and has been the the mainstream uh, line of offense for whoever is going to be the coordinator at Oregon that's a good point Joe Moorhead's never run a pistol before by the way that's not what he runs out of. He comes to Oregon, they stick with it. Nobody runs a pistol. Sure. And I'm, I'm not even going to argue what the validities of running a pistol. I would agree with you. I don't think it's a great offensive formation. I, the fact that you have the running back having to run an extra three to four yards before he gets the ball, basically, you know, it slows the whole play down, the timing of it. I won't argue that. But what I will say, I think you made a good point, is who, who's running the ship here? You know, and we don't know for sure. Um, but I will say some of the pitfalls we saw under Marcus Arroyo are still there under Joe Moorhead. Um, the pistol being one of those in terms of just format, you know, formationally, that's what they run out of. And that's not something Moorhead has ever done before. And then just the identity of some of the lack of creativity that I brought up earlier of, of like, it seems like this is not an offense that should be facing third and five and handing it up the middle for an interior run play between the guards especially when I think the strength of the offensive line might be at tackle for the most part. You know what I mean? I mean, there's some of the stuff. Right. And again, I, that's me probably really speaking out of turn because I, I will trust the offensive line coaches to at least know which the best offensive line player to place to call. But it, do, it does feel like there's a lot of things that just haven't changed much under Joe Moorhead. And I think we expected to see, like, I don't think I saw, like you said earlier, I didn't see besides from a couple of different option pitches and a little bit more of an option wrinkle out there at times, one of which goes for the touchdown. I didn't right. see a whole lot that looked that much different than right. what we've seen under Marcus Arroyo. And that's like kind of puzzling to me. It's extremely puzzling. Yeah. I'm, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was just going to translate over that. I don't, I'm, I've not been impressed with the offensive line. Mm. Um, yeah. No one. Yeah. That's not, that's true. <laughs> I don't think they were the worst on the offense from a, a production standpoint. But I don't think they're nearly as good as we maybe were expecting them to be this year. And that also, I'm trying really hard not to make some over-sweeping judgments on one week. Like, I, I do think we have to give credit to, to Fresno State here. Like, that's a good team. Like, it's not going to surprise me if they win nine, ten games this season. Like, if you count a bowl game. Like they're pretty good. They have a senior mm-hmm. quarterback who's mobile. Um, they've got some really good receivers. And I mean, we've said it on the podcast all week, like, and they backed it up. Um, and they also had a game under their belt, whereas Oregon didn't. So I, I do think you have to give some credit to Oregon. But like I said uh, on the site, I said it on social media. I think I said it here too on the podcast. Like Oregon should have been good enough from just a pure talent and depth perspective to win this game 
by three scores. It doesn't have to be 21 points and cover the spread, but this should have been a three-score win for Oregon, and, and it wasn't. And so I, I think you, you credit some of that to Fresno State, and I do think you credit some of that to the in, – inconsistency and just poor play by Oregon. And I think off the offensive line played a factor in that. They didn't get a huge jet generate a huge uh, push on the line uh, for running plays. And I thought at times Anthony Brown didn't have a very good pocket at all to throw the football. And in part that was maybe on him for holding it too long, but I think a good chunk of it was the inability by Oregon to pass protect. Definitely. Definitely wasn't super sold on the offensive line. And that's alarming for a lot of reasons. Yeah. They've recruited really well there. They're everyone's back. This is the position group the head coach focuses a lot of his time with and energy. Um, you'd think that that would be a strength of an offense. And frankly, I think they want that to be the strength of the offense. You know, you think, I mean, I, we talk about the identity of the offense and, and, and kind of how they choose to run in short circuit, you know, in certain circumstances, how they rely on power football. Clearly that's what they want this to be. And mm-hmm. now we had a conversation walking to our cars of like, is it possible that they're running an offense that they really don't have the personnel to pull off with? And I, th- I mean, you wonder, I mean, you'd sure like if you're going to run between the tackles as much as they seem to be inclined to do that and rely on that in situations to win football games, wouldn't you like to have some running backs that are 230, 240 pounds, some just big, thick guys, and instead they're putting out guys that are – I mean, I know C.J. Verdell is very compactly built, but no one's going to mistake him for somebody who'd be starting at Alabama and some of the running backs they've had there. And then the offensive line, I mean, I, I, you know, we should know. They, re, they continue to rotate. Yeah. They continue rotation. They continue rotation in the fourth quarter when they were down. They had, non, they had so non-starters strange. that had very little game experience opening up a series – in the fourth quarter when they're down with the ball on their side of the 30 yard line. Like they didn't have air quotes, their starters in the game at maybe one of the most important moments of the game. And I made this point too on the walk of, of like, we say this with quarterbacks. I think you made this point of like, we say this with quarterbacks. If you think you have to rely on two quarterbacks, you probably don't have one. I think if you have to rely on eight offensive linemen, you might not have five. You like, if you have five all American, all conference offensive linemen, you're not rotating them out of the game ever. And the fact that this is something that's going to continue, and I understand that Dawson Jaramillo has clearly had an awesome camp and deserves to play. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited that an in-state kid is getting that opportunity. This is his first real snaps. He's out there in big moments. Good for Dawson. I'm not taking anything away from him. This is not a detract from Dawson. I'm not saying Dawson's bad either. I'm just saying I find it alarming that you decide to insert him into the game, that you insert Big Sala, who, again, is a pseudo-starter from last year into the game, who hasn't been playing a ton, and you rotate Ryan Walkout, and you put George – sorry, you put Stephen Jones at right guard, and that's your lineup for fourth quarter drives that these guys haven't been playing much. And, like, I mean, again, I don't – I'm not paid to know offensive line play, and I, I won't pretend to be an expert. I just find that to be something that's a little bizarre, and I feel like the more we see this take place, the more I kind of go, like, do they just not have five good guys? Do they just not have five guys that they love on the offensive line? And is that why they're rotating so much? I, I don't know. It's kind of perplexing. And I thought as a whole here, um, the two weak links offensively were the offensive line and the quarterback play. And I think it's hard to argue anybody else was really even in that same group aside from a couple drops from Micah Pittman. I have, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, sorry. No, I just wanted to hop on the offensive line rotation stuff. I have a hard time with that because I do think when you find your five guys and you let them play together in practice as the ones, you tell them that they're the ones, they get this, this, this sense of confidence. They also get this continuity between each other, this gel, this rhythm that they all have. It's what that 2019 team had where you had five guys who were guaranteed to start and then Brady Ayala was number six, first guy off the pine. It's I, so when you come into practice every day, not knowing what position group you're going to be with, that's got to, it's got to take some bit of a toll because, well, one day you might get to be with the ones and the next year with the threes. And then some days you're with the twos. Like you can't, you go in there looking like, Oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to be playing or starting this week. Cause I've been with the twos. And then, so I, I just feel like it's a really hard thing for those, some of those offensive linemen to really, uh, you know, get chemistry together in the same group and understand each other's habits and blocking patterns. So I think, I think the offensive line could be better if they would just stick with five dudes and stick with those guys 
And if someone gets hurt, bring in their backup and have a set list, a depth chart, a real depth chart of actual backups to each position. Cosign. Let's shift over to the defense because we, I, I, I feel like if we wanted to, we could talk for three hours about the offense and sure, yeah. how, they weren't in, how they were inefficient in this game. And I do think we need to discuss a little bit about the defense. And, I mean, shoot, we're 30 minutes into this podcast, and we haven't even discussed Kayvon Thibodeau having an injury and not playing in the second half. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, Cristobal post-game came out and said that, you know, you never want to wish it on anybody. They, they took a hit off the edge when he had to leave the game. He didn't play in the second half, but he did. The key thing here is, one, Cristobal did come out, and he did say that x-rays were negative. They think it's sprained ankle. Uh, things are, are hopeful to be positive for next week. He should be available to play. Cristobal didn't say the available to play part, but just you put two and two together. And the fact that he played almost an entire second quarter on that foot tells me uh, it, it's not as serious as it, as it would be. I mean, it, it would be one thing if he got hurt in the late in the first quarter, like he did, he got retaped up, tested out, nothing, you know, didn't, didn't come back at all. And then walked out in the second half in the walking boot, like he did, that would be a bigger issue for me than seeing him actually play on it for a quarter. I mean, I, I think it was pretty precautionary. Let's take him out. We can win this game without him. Let's get him, you know, begin his rehab now for Ohio State. But I think this defense showed us quite a bit. And, Eric, you had a pretty cool stat that Oregon has three five-star guys on defense, um, I guess four, and Flo, Sewell, Manning, and Thibodeau. But the main three, Thibodeau, Flo, and, and, and Sewell, all three of them caused turnovers today, which is pretty remarkable and was much needed. Huge turnovers, massive turnovers. I mean, game-defining turnovers. I mean, I mean, let's just say it for what it is. If, if Oregon doesn't force those two for- turnovers in the first half, I'm not confident the offense does enough for Oregon to be leading yeah. at that time. And mm-hmm. by that byproduct, I don't know if they win the game without those turnovers. I really don't. Um, those turnovers, each of them put them in scoring position. Two resulted in touchdowns. One resulted in a field goal to tie the game. That's 17 points directly off of those turnovers. And again, each of them put them in Fresno State territory. One of them at about the five-yard line. Um, and actually, you know, it, not to, to focus too much on the offense here because we have, but just like I just a slight comment here, and we'll switch back. The fact that it took three tries from four yards out on the very first sequence there to score with C.J. Verdell probably should have been a little more alarming than it was in the moment. Um, and kind of was a precursor for what happened the rest of the game. But yeah, no, those players making those, I mean, the athleticism, speed and ferocity that Oregon has on the second level at linebacker is absolutely terrifying and is really, really exciting. Um, that, that linebacker group, I haven't done grades. That group probably deserves an A or an A plus for how productive they were, for how, um, destructive they were for the turnovers they forced for, I mean, Justin Flo, shoot, he had 14 tackles in this game. Um, that's a ton basically for a debut. So, I mean, I just thought that the, that the linebackers as a whole were really, really effective, really, really good out there. Did they have mistakes? Absolutely. Um, Justin Flo flagged for 15 yards to extend what ends up being a touchdown scoring drive by Hayner um, by coming up and, and late hitting him could have been reviewed for a targeting call. It wasn't fortunately, um, I think there were like four of those plays with were, uh, where it was kind of like, oh boy, this might be targeting. There's a couple of those mm-hmm. with Flo for sure. I mean, yeah, he's very aggressive. And we had to ask, there's a, someone asked a question about just kind of the walking that fine line between being aggressive and being flagged for penalties. And it is a fine line with how he plays. Um, but yeah, no, I just thought that the defense as a whole at that level was really, really effective. Um, now, I will also say that the secondary played a lot of soft zones early in that first half. Um, Jake Hayner threw for about 220 yards despite two turnovers in that first half. Yep. A lot of them came late on a couple of drives. Their first drive of the second half, a lot of success. And then I think Oregon may have switched to play a little bit more man-to-man from there. I'd like to go back and watch. But it just seemed like there weren't the opportunity for – I mean, because there was a sequence there, and Jared and I were talking about in the press box, where it seemed like basically there were such soft zones that there was a wide open guy by the sticks every play. And all he had to do basically was if he could sit in the pocket for three seconds, it was a first down. Um, yep. It seemed like that improved a little bit throughout. I don't think, 
I think fans were critic- criticizing the pass defense. I don't think that was terrible, terrible secondary play for the most part. A lot of it wasn't man-on-man. A lot of it was scheme-related. Um, but certainly a, a secondary group that, like, you look at the box score and you want to put, you know, pick a, a part of the defense that didn't perform well or at least didn't look good in the, in the box score, it's the secondary. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to point to anything else because, again, I mean, you look at what Fresno State did on the ground. You take away a really long run from Jordan Mims. And they ran for 30 yards. They had negative yeah. eight in the first half. Um, there were eight tackles for loss, four sacks. But Jake Kaner threw for almost 300 yards, no turnovers in terms of passes that were intercepted. You do have to – one thing about the stats for passing, I am with you that, like, there is a little bit of a concern when they went to zone. But at the same time, like, when a team can't run the ball, they have to resort to the other way. And they're going to they're gonna amass yardage – throwing the football if all they're doing is throwing because they can't run. Sure. And, you know, Ronnie Rivers is, their, in my opinion, their best player. And Oregon neutralized it, made him nothing. And so I, I look at that as, you know, they did a lot of man – they did a lot of zone in the first half. Um, they had a lot of freshmen in the secondary playing, a lot of newcomers playing in the secondary. Um, a new defense, first game of the year, playing against – a real solid receiving core against the senior quarterback. That's a pac 12 level guy. And yeah, they got carved up at times, but I, I, I have more confidence right now that the secondary will perform better week two, week three, week four, than I do right now in the offense performing better week two, week three, week four for Oregon right now. Yeah. I never, I, I didn't really have any issues with how the secondary defended today. I thought, like Eric, like you were saying, in the first half, there was a lot of zone coverage, and Jay Kaner picked them apart. It was basically like he ran an air raid offense for about a quarter. And But you look, so the first half, he throws for 220 yards. The second half, when they start to play a little more man coverage and there's somebody in people's faces, he throws for 78. Yeah, like, and Jay Kaner's a good quarterback, and he has weapons on that offense. And, yeah, they, they ran for 85 yards, so – and in the first half, they ran for negative eight, which is good. But the whole entire second half, there was no KT. Uh, there was no Drew Mathis, who I think is probably a better defender in the run rather than Justin Flo. But I, I thought the defense played well just in general. I thought the interior line was good. I thought they got a lot of pressure on the quarterback, especially when KT was in the game. Uh, obviously, Kayvon was great off the edge, but Adrian Jackson played a good game. Uh, Mace Funa came back from an injury in the second half. He played really well in the fourth quarter. He, you know, ultimately the Brandon Dorless sack that helped solidify or helped stop a drive from Fresno State was caused by Mace Funa coming off the edge. Um, yeah, you, and you saw a lot of true freshmen play today on defense, and I thought they all showed – they all didn't make a mistake, which is great for a true freshman that you don't look out there and see the guy who messed up and be like, oh, that's a true freshman. I, one I thought, oh, oh, I was just going to mention that I thought Manning and Bridges, the two boundary corners in man coverage were very good today. Just to the point I wanted to make in terms of Oregon's defense here, looking at the numbers, um, the big three from a skill position perspective, I'm not including Hayner here, but I'm talking about Ronnie Rivers, Jalen Cropper, and Ty Jones. Those are the three guys we spent a lot of time talking about. Those are the guys that are NFL caliber players. Did a pretty good job on them. Ronnie Rivers, 14 carries, 40 yards, long run of eight. Uh, in the past game, four for 19, long catch of 16. So we had one first down distance kind of like explosion play from Rivers. And then Jalen Cropper, he had seven catches. He did have the touchdown, um, but only mm-hmm. 49 yards on seven catches. So that was, mm-hmm. I mean, they did a hell of a job keeping him in front of them. 29 came on the touchdown. So if you take that out, that's six catches for, for 20 yards. That means they did a heck of a job keeping him corralled other than that one play where he – that was yeah. the defensive miscue. I'd like to go back and watch what happened there. He basically ran untouched in the middle of the defense as the clock was almost running to zero in the first half. And then Ty Jones had uh, one catch for, for seven yards. So um, their big three – you know, those big three guys didn't do a ton today. Um, Hayner was still able to move the ball a little bit. We should know uh, a guy whose name I hadn't even heard of coming in really probably should have, but Carrick Wheatfall had five catches for 76 yards. He was their most productive skill player from a yards perspective all day. Looking at this team, seeing how Ohio state played week one, seeing how Oregon played week one, I didn't think Oregon would beat 
Ohio State. I didn't think Oregon would beat Ohio State after we saw what the Buckeyes looked like against Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But my perspective on this game has kind of been up and down the last (laughs) 72 hours. Going into Thursday, I wasn't expecting Oregon to win. After Thursday, I I thought, well, it's possible. And, you know, they've got a better chance than I was giving them. And now after seeing Oregon play again, I'm kind of going back to that. I don't have a lot of confidence going into that game that Oregon's going to win. And I think that's kind of the biggest takeaway I have with Oregon versus Fresno State is – they won. That's the most important thing. They got the victory. But this was supposed to be a game that should have been a game in which you're progressing, you're walking off the field confident, you know you have a lot to improve upon, and yet it's all systems go going to Ohio State and you're riding you know, at a high momentum clip right now to win this football game, and I don't feel that way anymore. I mean, shoot, I felt better after Oregon lost to Auburn in 19 after a season opener about the rest of the season than they do right now. Um, you know, and I, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the 19 team had a lot more veteran guys I was sure of in certain spots, at quarterback, offensive line in particular. Um, but, boy, it, it, I think it's really hard for anyone to argue with a straight face they feel better about beating Ohio State after watching that for 60 minutes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's – I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Oregon's going to have to play a heck of a lot better to make that game competitive, in my opinion. I mean, can they win that game? It would take everything breaking their way. It really would, in my opinion. Or it would take an offense that, again, like, who knows? I mean, there's the conspiracy of, like, maybe they're holding stuff back that suddenly is just incredible and does all sorts of stuff that we haven't seen them do. And Ohio State's totally taken off guard, and there's all sorts of explosive plays. Because, the, I mean, the reason – we don't have to go too much in this because there's a lot of Ohio State talk, but – the reason I thought Oregon had a shot against Ohio State in theory was because I was like, okay, their defense will keep Ohio State from doing too much and their offense will be good enough to score. I don't know if the offense is good enough right now to, to sustain drives against Ohio State. I mean, shoot, they scored 31 points today and only like, what, a 10 of those came off of drives that they sustained that weren't from directly off of turnovers or something yeah. like that? Somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. Um, yeah, it, it's 10. I mean, they had the field goal that they converted and then they had – um, the touch, the touchdown pass to Johnny Johnson. The other three were set up by turnovers by Fresno State on their side of the football field. Yeah, so whatever the number is, but like it's it, they didn't do much sustaining drives. And I'm Ohio State's defense didn't look great against Minnesota, but they had a lot of guys out of the lineup. Oregon's going to have a hard time moving the ball. And the other thing I'll say is Ohio State is really explosive in the passing game. Again, Oregon was playing some a lot of zone. I don't know if they'll do that much next week. Maybe they will. Um, I think that would be a mistake based on what we saw in the first half today. But um, I, I look at this and go, uh, they're going to need a lot to break their way to be competitive in this game. And, and again, I think it's hard to come away from this feeling better about where the season's headed than when we came into it a couple hours ago. I think after watching the Ohio State game on Thursday against Minnesota, uh, I didn't feel I, – I, I agree with Matt. I didn't feel good about it at all. Prior, I still don't um, – when you look at that Minnesota game, Minnesota was able to, to have a lead and be in the game in the first half because they could run the football with their star running back. Uh, Abraham, I believe, was his last name. But yeah, once, he went, once he went down with an injury, that was it. Ohio State said, look, we're, we're going to force you guys to beat us with the pass. And Minnesota physically could not. And if Ohio State decides to do that against Oregon, similar to how Fresno State kind of did it today at one point, that's going to be very hard. And obviously Ohio State's offense is going to be, it's going to be Ohio State. They have their, I don't even know, three potential All-American wide receivers, which is not good uh, for anybody to play defense against them. Uh, so, you know, Michael Wright and Dante Manning, all those guys, maybe well, the help of potentially DJ James and Jamal Hill returning, uh, that's going to be a battle. And if Oregon can get pressure up front, I think it could be, potentially enough to stop them or slow them down on some drives. But I, I, at this point with the offense and how they perform today, it could, it could get bad. It could, it might be a laugher. Laugher. Uh-oh. A laugher. Yeah. That'd be bad. Would not Real be a quick. good display for the pack. Real quick. Let's discuss this kicking day performance, special teams day performance by Oregon, because We've been, I'll admit, we've been a little negative here on the podcast. 
And I do think if you were to find an area that was in particular very good, it was Oregon special teams units um, mm-hmm. for the most part. And we had a surprise at place kicker right off the bat. Yeah, well, a tip of the cap to Hayden Herrera, who's a KMTR local TV who broadcaster who told us on Pac-12 Media Day, or sorry, Oregon's Media Day in early August that uh, Camden Lewis was going to be the team's kicker. I don't think he had any inside information. I think he was just making a really out there guess, and he was right. And Camden wasn't bad today. You know, I, I, he made his extra points. He made his field goal. He was the, we didn't see any Henry Cattleman. Camden was also the kickoff specialist. He had uh, six kickoffs. Four of them were touchbacks which is fine. Um, that's about what you'd like. I wasn't bothered by Camden Lewis. He wasn't the reason the team didn't play very well. Shoot, if he doesn't make that field goal, the tenor of that second half and that fourth quarter is probably really different. If he misses a couple extra points, same thing. So he played well enough to keep being the kicker next week. I'll put it that way. I don't think you're going to mm-hmm. see a change here unless Camden Lewis starts missing kicks again. Because what Mario Cristobal has said is, is that, I think we said this on one of the, I think it was a previous show, Camden Lewis was like 37 for 40 or something in fall campus in field goals. It's hard not to make that guy your kicker. And he went out and at least did it today. And then the other component of this that I just wanted to shout out, maybe the MVP of the entire game is Tom Snee. He had Mm -hmm. five punts, which by the way is a lot for a season opening game, 47 yard average. He had a punt that was really critical in making sure that the momentum didn't flip over to Fresno State. Fresno State gets that stop there in the fourth quarter, has a chance to extend their lead. Snee punts it from 57-yard punt that pins them within their own five. Um, that ends up being a drive that stalls. Oregon ends up getting it. And that's, I think, what leads to um, the, the go-ahead touchdown. So there, there were moments in this game where Tom Snee was really pivotal. There were moments in this game where field position was at a premium, and I thought he delivered. And it was really exciting to see Oregon's special teams actually be a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing, which they've been um, probably a little more than we'd like of late. Yeah, Tom had a great day. I thought, honestly, he could have had an even better day if his first punt was, like, fielded correctly down at the goal. Yeah, what what yeah. happened there? What did Mikhail do? Know. What's he doing? I, yeah, if you, if you didn't watch, Mikhail set himself up with both feet in the end zone, and then as the ball was coming to him, like, jumped over the line, caught the ball, and put it down. It was very strange. It was is called back for a touchback. That can't be how they're teaching that, is it? No, I would put your heels at the goal line and set up like you're, you know, fielding a ground ball. That's how, that's how I thought you were taught to do it. I don't know. Maybe this is something new Oregon's doing. Not effective. <laughs> no, it didn't work. didn't work this time. But So that one was a touchback. But other than that, if, if that one was fielded correctly, Tom would have had all five of his punts inside the 20. Yeah. That's really good. Pretty good. That's really good. And then on the flip side, Camden Lewis. I had Camden going three for three in field goals and making all of his extra points. That was my prediction. He didn't have three field goals, but he was perfect from the line today or the field of where the hash, whatever you want to call it. And I was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a good uh, confidence booster, honestly, to get him going out there first game of the year, kick a meaningful field goal, hit all his extra points, be the kickoff specialist. It was a good day of the office for Camden Lewis. I know I'm not, I know I'm Scopel Damas and I'm supposed to know that the future holds, but if this is a deal where Camden Lewis ends up being a really good, has a really good season, we, we should give a lot of credit to, to Mario Cristobal. It would have been very easy to go with Cattleman based on what we knew already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People, people are very critical of his, a lot of his personnel decisions. But if this one works, like, boy, that's going to be pretty impressive because I think everybody thought Camden's days as a primary kicker were, were kind of behind him. Let's yeah. end the show with this. Um, player of the game. Each of us pick one guy. It can be the same one. We're doing this on the cuffs. We have no pre-discussion of this. I'm going – uh, with Justin Flo at linebacker for the Ducks. He made the tackle that got the ball back for Oregon to make the game-winning score. He finished with 14 total tackles, five of those being solo. He got a tackle for loss. Yes, he had some personal foul penalties, but he was everything we expected to see last year. And I have to go back, Eric, but did Noah – I'm not trying to like downplay Noah Soul at all, but I'm having a hard time remembering a freshman coming out and playing in the way he did and having 14 tackles in his first game. I think Sewell had probably close to 10, but it was he had like five. He didn't have a great game. Did he? Okay. Because he was math has played a lot. This was really good. Mm-hmm. Like Justin Flo was really good today. 
closest thing in terms of a debut, I will also say Justin Flo, by the way, before I get too far into this, the closest thing I can think of is Troy Dye's debut back yes. in 15. Yeah, it was, no, 16. 16. 16. The 16. We all know about that season. The 16 year. But uh, yeah, he was a very, he was a very large bright spot in what was otherwise a very dark time for Oregon sports. And that first game from Troy Dye was great. And then from Justin Flo perspective, you're, I mean, I don't know what else to say. He was incredible. Honestly, more than I expected to see from him everywhere. He was always around the ball. You made that point, Jared, we were sitting there. I don't remember when it was because it could have been a handful of times to say it, but yeah, you just turn and said, Flo's always around the ball. And you're right. He was always around the ball and he made a ton of plays, just always involved in everything. Um, looks like somebody who, who will not be playing college football very long, probably just going to play this year and then 22 at Oregon and then he'll be gone. Cause that, and I know that's a big thing to say after one game, but uh, he didn't leave. A it lot was out. good. <laughs> he didn't leave yeah. a lot out there. That <laughs> it I was good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Flo was the best player on the field today, but I'm going to go with Tom Snee as our MVP. I think I think Tom was was really good today. Uh, I think Oregon having that in their back pocket to have a, a, a good punter, someone like Blake Lemoyne, um, is going to be it's going to be big for them. And I hope that Tom could continue to do this because if he kicks it like he did today and he does that on a consistent basis, he's a he's an NFLer. Oh, I will also say that was my other candidate for player of the game, and that, which, which who, isn't a good thing. Who would we have even suggested? Who would we have even suggested yeah. offense? I didn't even think of an offensive player. I was like, I'm writing that all off. Now, I mean, Johnny Johnson, maybe. Yeah, I guess. If KT doesn't get hurt, KT's the MVP. KT's the MVP. He was. Yeah. I agreed, Jerry, with what you said that Justin was the best player on the field today, and that's because he played the entire game and was out there the most. But. KT was the best player in this game. He just did not play the entire game. Yeah. And it was for the for the small sample size we got of KT, it was pretty damn impressive. And then you really hope from just a pure game and standpoint, he's healthy and ready to go against Ohio State because it might be the first time in a very long time that Ohio State steps on the football field and they do not have the best player playing uh, in their home stadium on their team. Mm -hmm. uh, it, he's, he was that good. Um, so hopefully Kayvon is healthy and ready to go for Ohio state. Cause that's going to be a heck of a matchup for him against that team, but it's going to do it. Excuse me. That's going to do it for us here on the Austin audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for watching the show on YouTube. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Austin audibles podcast. Dr. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.